0: Okay, good morning everyone. Good to see some faces for the first time in a while. Um, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are preaching through the book of, I'm going to take this off, 1 uh, Kings. And we are going to be reading from 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Kings chapter 12 verse 1 through 13. This is God's word. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him uh, sorry, I meant one through 15. I just thought, okay. Uh, they sent and called him and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Reboam, your father has made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us. And we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days. Then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you shall speak to this people who said to you, Your father has made our yoke heavy, but you, will, you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions." So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Uh, This is God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit, um, by the gentleness and compassion of your son, you would be speaking your truth to us faithfully. I pray, Lord, for those of us who are wandering, you would turn us back. Um, for those of us who have um, yeah, lived uh, in foolishness, that you would um, restore us and convince us of the wisdom of your ways, but also how you even take um, our bad decisions and our sinfulness and redeem it for good. Um, so I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us powerfully, that we would be able to trust you and that you would use me um, to speak your word faithfully. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright. Uh, so we're going to be talking about uh, we're going to be talking about folly and fidelity. So uh, folly and faithfulness. We're going to be talking about man's folly and God's faithfulness or fidelity to us. Um, I want you to think for a second. Uh, there are a couple of kind of topics I want to bring up before we get into the text. Uh, the first one is I want to ask you a question. What is your view of God's sovereignty? What does sovereignty mean as a theological concept? Okay, I used a bunch of words there. What the heck is sovereignty? What is all this stuff? Um for God's sovereignty, I want you to think for a second about, if you want, if you you can use this example. There was a show on Netflix um, a while back during the pandemic um, called *Queen's Gambit*. Did anyone watch that? So it's basically about chess, right? Is, is anyone does anyone play chess a lot? Is there anyone, J- Joshua, maybe a little bit? Um, when so, uh, *Queen's Gambit* is a show. Uh, it's a fictional show about a female chess player who uh, was extraordinarily gifted and ascended to these incredibly high ranks in the chess grandmaster arena. Um, And I want you to think about God's sovereignty in terms of a chess grandmaster. So if you've ever played against someone who's really good at chess, or if you think about any sort of strategy game, um, what what you realize is what, so like I'm playing against, say my dad or whatever, my dad's really good at chess and i can make basically there's while there is a limited number of possible moves there are a lot of different possible moves right in chess um, and you know there's that game go the japanese game which has like more infinite possibilities than chess it's easier to like to anyway you, you don't care about that anyway so i'm playing chess i'm playing chess with my dad i can make a bunch of different moves i can move my pawn i can move my bishop i can move my rook i can move my knight i can move all these different pieces And I am in control of the choices I make when I'm playing my dad. But because my dad is such an excellent chess player, it feels like no matter what I choose, he is always in control. Do you know what I mean? If you've ever played, or if you've played a video game, or if you played a sport, these are all examples where it's like, you can try whatever you want, you can do whatever you can, but it always feels like the other more masterful player is in control. And so what I want to suggest is in this passage, we see how God's sovereignty is not simplistic. Um, in our lives, we constantly think that we're so smart. I, I am totally convinced of this. Okay, maybe maybe it's just me, but I'm pretty sure it's most people. Where you say, um, I know my, how my life is supposed to go. Um, I know what outcomes are positive and good. And when life does not turn out the way I expect um, God is messing up. God is doing something wrong. Um, or even here, let me give another example. Maybe some of you have made, in a sense, terrible, foolish choices in your life. And I would be one of those people. So let me give you a, a dumb example. Um, when I've, I've told this many times, but when I was a junior in high school, uh, I had a physics project worth half my grade. And I chose foolishly the night before just not to do that project, right? And so I was making a foolish choice. But what's so incredible about the sovereignty of God is God actually redeems our foolish choices. God actually redeems our sinful choices and can use them for his good and his good purposes the same way a chess master can completely change the state of the board no matter what choice you make. And now this has a lot of bearing on many of the situations that we've been facing. So I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you. Is your view of God's control in the world, is your view of how well God is doing in running the world um, based on who is in the White House at any given moment? And your view of how foolish they're acting or how wisely they're acting? This book is all about kings, right? And what's really interesting is the story we're going to see today is that God can repurpose and redeem the foolish choices of politicians for his purposes. Now, what does that mean for us as Christians? For many Christians I've observed, when their politician does not get elected into the White House, they panic and they freak out. And they say, our nation is going to hell. Look at the moral decay. Look at the foolishness of all the politicians. Uh, Therefore, you feel afraid. You feel embattled. You feel like you have to stand up and fight even harder against these forces that are threatening Christianity. But what's really interesting is in this passage, there is a foolish king who is ruling. And it doesn't just say that God repurposed that foolishness. It actually says in verse 15, the king did not listen to the people. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. So what's really interesting is God does not cease to be in control even when humans make foolish decisions. God does not cease to be control in control when I, Daniel, make foolish decisions. And this is actually incredibly, incredibly powerful as a truth because it means that we don't have to panic No matter how circumstances seem to be going, are you the chess grandmaster who can rearrange circumstances in your favor, or is God the grandmaster? You can't understand why God is doing what he's doing. So think about the pandemic, think about whatever circumstance you might be facing. You can't understand what God's doing, but God can, and God's sovereignty is the truth that he is in control despite how things might appear to us. And in order to understand this, we have to look at scripture and we have to see the history of how God has interacted with history, okay? So uh, this is about humanity's folly, our folly, and folly is a word that means foolishness. And if you look at the book of Proverbs, the book of Psalms, um, actually like all throughout scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, foolishness is a technical term and it, it means It means a number of things. It means, number one, um, a lack of common sense. You could definitely say that. So it means, like, you don't know how to live well and do things that lead to your own good and thriving. That's one definition. But there's another component to that where foolishness is a lack of awareness of God and what he's doing. And so in Psalm 14, there's a really famous psalm where it says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. And so that's another understanding of foolishness where here's the really interesting thing. You can make all the best decisions in terms of your personal success. You can choose the right um, classes to take, get all the the best grades, go to the best college, get the best job. And yet the Bible still says you are foolish because you say in your heart there is no God. You don't recognize God's activity behind the scenes in orchestrating the course of your life, both in your success and your failure, both when you make foolish decisions and when you make wise decisions, God is the one orchestrating all of this. Um, And so that is kind of the definition of folly or foolishness. And we're going to see a great example of human stupidity, but then the focus in this passage is actually not only on human stupidity and what we can learn from the negative example of this King uh, Rehoboam, but also on God's sovereignty, despite our stupidity. Okay. And I'm using the word stupidity, not to be crude, but because this is like, it kind of gives the force of the decisions that we can make and how uh, damaging they are. And yet God is the grandmaster. Okay. So uh, I got three points for today. Number one, Boomers versus Zoomers, who will be the king of the fools. Boomers versus Zoomers, I'll explain that. Uh, number two, our folly is redeemed toward God's purposes, towards God's purposes. So I, I, I wrote, I, I don't know if that's, I think it's grammatically correct, but the point is our folly does not foil God's plan, but not only that, it is redeemed to fulfill God's plan. And this is actually a really rich view of God's sovereignty that we probably don't, even if we know it intellectually, we definitely don't often experience it. So, I mean, I run into this all the time with different people where, um, for for example, um, (laughs) when it comes to people's job hunt right out of of college, I'm not trying to like point fingers at everyone, um, but often people say, Like people experience a lot of worry and anxiety around their ability or inability to get a job right after college. That totally makes sense. That's totally normal. Um, But what I often wanna tell people is, like you're so worried about this and you have such a great idea over the perfect job for you. But have you ever considered that you might not know what is good for you? Have you ever considered that God not letting you get a job yet might be actually for a reason? Or even the job that you wanted, God doesn't let you have that job because there's something else He's doing and His plan is actually working in a different way than you considered. Um, And so, um, and then I would even say it even further than that like our folly, our actual bad, sinful choices, God actually redeems towards His purposes. Um, And so, for parents, like if I want you to imagine for a second that your kid is doing what I was doing right where your kid is making actively destructive choices um, and actively being foolish Um, how do you feel about that do you think that because your kid is making those choices that god doesn't care about them that god is not in control of their life that god doesn't love them and isn't seeking them and bringing them to know him Um, these are some of the practical on the ground challenges that we have Coping and experiencing and understanding God's sovereignty. And then the third thing I want you to see is even when we're foolish, even when we wander, when we sin, when our heart is far from God, God faithfully disciplines his children whom he loves. So here's another aspect of God's sovereignty I want us to think about. Um, we do not, as a society or culture, consider what it looks like for God to discipline us out of love. We have a problem with authority in general and not everyone, but many people do. And so we, again, out of our, like, in a sense, pride and arrogance, um, in our plan for how our lives should look, we think we always know how God is supposed to act towards us. And it basically means God never confronts or challenges our desires or plans. He never, he kind of gives us what we want. He never confronts us. He never withholds or disappoints us. We think that that's what it means for God to love us. But in this passage, um, the author of scripture is using the analogy of a parent parenting their child. So if you're a parent, like my wife, Ashley's pregnant, so I don't know what it's like to be a parent yet, but like to some degree, I understand what it means to, um, To have the challenge of being an authority and trying to, like, you know, like in youth group, for example, right? Where junior high boys are like piranhas. And the moment they smell fear or blood in the water, they will pounce on you. And so, if you're teaching junior high boys, you have to, in a sense, be firm. You have to push back against them trying to cross boundaries so that you can show your care and love for them and, like, bring the group together. Right. And that's actually a a demonstration, an analogy in scripture where God disciplines us out of his love for us as his children, which means God confronts us when we wander from him. He doesn't leave us alone or neglect us. Where as a parent, if your kid is making bad decisions, um, the worst thing in the world you can do is say, oh, I don't want him to think that he does that. I don't love him. So I'm not going to try to protect him from his negative consequences, or I'm not going to try to bring him back out of his foolishness or her foolishness, right? Um, So God faithfully disciplines his children whom he loves. Okay. So those are three points. So let's go ahead and get into it. The first thing I want to see is we're going to look at King Rehoboam and we're going to see what's going on in this reign. So Solomon, his heart turned away from God. And he at the end of his life, when he was old, he started to worship other gods. And as a result of that, God promised to Solomon, and God actually made a prophecy to Jeroboam, uh, that the kingdom of Israel would be split apart. It would be torn apart. And there would be ten tribes of Israel on one side. And in throughout the in the divided kingdom in the scripture, people call this Israel right? So this is 10 tribes of Israel. And then the other two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were are often called Judah, right? And so Solomon's infidelity or faithlessness to God causes Israel to split apart. And so he was the wisest king in the world. He was the richest king. Israel was thriving. And yet because his heart wandered from God, the consequences were the kingdom split And so, this is basically the origin story of how the kingdom split, and it began with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And it's really annoying because these names are kind of close to each other, so it's like you get them mixed up. So, Rehoboam was initially um, the rightful successor to Solomon, and we're gonna kind of picture, we're gonna learn what he was like as a character, and hopefully, we can remember he's like this, and then Jeroboam is a little bit different. Let's go ahead and go back into the text and see where we're going to go. So who is King Rehoboam and what is he like? Uh, Let's look at the first part of uh, Kings chapter 12. Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king, right? So Rehoboam is going to be crowned king because Solomon passed away. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. So right off the bat, the first thing that happens at his coronation ceremony is people start to complain and make accusations that Solomon was not a fair or good ruler, okay? So this is like, um, for all of you kids in school, do you guys remember when substitute teachers come to your classroom? Whenever substitute teachers come into a classroom, the kids are like sizing them up, and they're like, "Are they gonna just like have us watch a movie, or like, are they gonna, are we gonna be able to mess with them and fool?" And like, th- like this is basically what's happening in Israel, where the first thing that happens after Rehoboam gets crowned king is people are trying to test his mettle as a ruler. They're trying to see what type of first impression are you gonna make? Are you going to be a strong ruler? Can we push you around? Are you going to be a weak ruler? And then the other thing we learn is Jeroboam, there is a prophet in chapter 11. So if you guys want to look at chapter 11, um, near the end of chapter 11, there is a prophet named Ahijah who comes to Jeroboam and says, because Solomon has been unfaithful and not walked in the ways and statutes of God, I'm going to tear the kingdom from him and I'm going to give you 10 pieces of my cloth. So he tears his garment into 12 pieces, and he says, you are going to rule over 10 tribes of Israel. And so Jeroboam uses this, and it's uh, who Jeroboam is a really capable, ambitious person. And because he's so capable and ambitious, and everyone sees him as a natural leader, he is the spokesperson he, for Israel. Um, they use him to bring their complaints about Rehoboam and Solomon. And he's the one who's going to take over 10 tribes of Israel, okay? So there's a prophecy about him earlier on in chapter 11. Um, And so what does uh, Jeroboam and Israel say to Rehoboam? Your father made our yoke heavy. Now lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. So they're testing his mettle. They're gonna see how he responds to the complaints that they're making. But underneath it is actually uh, Jeroboam and Israel trying to overthrow Rehoboam. So that's kind of their motivation underneath. So let's, let's think for a second, based on what we've read in the book so far, was their complaint justified? Was Solomon a uh, evil, harsh, cruel, wicked ruler who overworked all the people of Israel? And in a sense, are they right in complaining to Rehoboam? Uh, so let me give you a few pieces of information showing, arguing that Solomon's rule was not characterized by being harsh and domineering. So let me give you some pieces of information. Was their complaint justified? Look at 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 14. When Solomon was enlisting the men of Israel to build the temple of God, he sent them off to a foreign country to gather supplies for the temple. And so he enlisted and forced people to work for the kingdom to build the temple of God. And what did he do? He gave them one month away, away from home. So um, imagine this like this was before planes, you would have to travel in a boat or you'd have to travel on land for a long time to go away to a foreign country and then you would have to work there. And he made them work for one month in a foreign country. But then he said, after you work in a foreign country for one month, you get two months at home with your family. Now, For many people in America or in China, in companies right now, they don't give people one month away working and two months with their family. And this would have been absolutely unheard of in this kind of um, culture and at this point in history. Where you, you look at Pharaoh when he was building the pyramids and like the Israelites didn't get breaks you know, they didn't they, they, the, the Pharaoh wasn't like, oh, you know, you're sweating a lot, you know, lugging those big heavy stones to build the pyramids. You look really tired. Why don't you take some time off? Right. But Solomon actually gave them a generous amount of time off because he knew that going to a foreign country was you know, dangerous to travel there. It was hard work. You get lonely. You miss your family. And so Solomon's reign was actually very, um, I would say, like judicious, like fair, but also generous in the way he gave them rest. And that's totally out of touch with the complaint that Jeroboam is bringing against Rehoboam. Other pieces of information, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 8 through 9, the queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon because Solomon is so wise. And she says to him, happy are your men. So the queen of Sheba, everyone in the world hears about King Solomon's people, and what do they hear? What do they observe? When, when she's here, what does she observe? The people in your kingdom, the people under your rule are happy. Now, why are they happy? Because God has made him king that he may execute justice and righteousness. And so Solomon is characterized by executing justice, and you can kind of think about that as fairness or the ability to protect the good of the people Um, and also righteousness. So he does the right thing. So this is a pretty good king, right? But let's keep going. First Kings chapter 10, verse 21, uh, silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon, which is pretty crazy to think about, right? Silver was not considered as anything. This was like, like for us, you know, you build stuff with like concrete or whatever, like silver, you just, just, just throw, throw a block of silver there. We'll use it as a doorpost or like a paperweight or something. We don't really care about it. I mean, gold, that's a, that's a little bit better, but that's how wealthy Israel was. And it was all based on the rule of Solomon. So was Solomon, did he have a heavy yoke? Was he unfair? Did he lead to kind of misery for his subjects? No. Look at verse 23. King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God has put into his mind. And so all of these are just kind of demonstrating that Jeroboam and Israel, they just want to take over the throne. They just want their person in charge. And so their complaints are not justified. And they just are using it to test Rehoboam's mettle and see how he's going to respond and also to kind of make a political play, right? Now, how does Rehoboam respond to this? And this is where we're going to see foolishness. Um, we're going to see his foolishness. And there honestly are lessons you can probably learn about how to lead people here, um, how to like be a good manager at a company. There's a lot of wisdom here um, you can learn from this. But this is not the main point of the passage, as we're going to see. So let's look at Rehoboam's foolishness. How does he respond to uh, Jeroboam and all these other people? This is where we get to boomers and zoomers, right? Um, so number one we see that he, uh... okay, here, here we go. There are two different groups that he listens to. He takes counsel with the old men, the boomers, who had stood before Solomon, his father, okay? So he talks to the older people, the people who are wiser, and honestly, these are the people who had sat in the court with Solomon as he was making his wise judgments, So they would have picked up on Solomon's wisdom and righteousness and they had the experience and wisdom of age. What was there advice for Rehoboam to tell Jeroboam in Israel. So like, how do you placate or how do you quell this kind of like, you know, the natives are restless. You know, they're getting a little, like this is when um, in, a, in a classroom, the students think the teacher is so unfair that they try to revolt. And they're like, none of us are gonna do our homework or whatever it might be. Um, it's something like that. How are you going to placate this huge population, all of these people in Israel led by Jeroboam? Look at what the boomers say. If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them and you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. So how is this wisdom from the the older generation? We see a lot of things here. So basically they're saying, um, as a king, you should serve your people, right? If you've ever been in any sort of position of power, Um, is this your attitude? Or even if you look at Silicon Valley CEOs, look at the ideal CEOs. Do you think their mentality when it comes to managing people is, oh, I want to be a servant of my employees. And therefore I'm going to pay a lot of attention to their salary and like, oh, this employee looks kind of unhappy. Like, how can I help you? How can I make you happy? No, they're like, you're not performing. You're fired. Um, And it's almost like, uh, there, there are some studies that say that a lot of CEOs are sociopathic, which means they have tech, the technical meaning is they, have the, the, they cannot feel empathy for other people and they don't really care. And that's actually a positive quality in many CEOs. And for some reason, we keep on putting them in those positions. But the, the boomers are saying, be a servant to them, serve them. And then the next part, speak good words to them when you answer them. And they will be your servants forever. So this is really wise, and you see this a lot in politicians today, where you want to placate your voting group, and so you praise them, right? And you could the negative, the kind of negative term for this would be like you flatter them. You just say whatever you can to like make them feel good about themselves, and that's a way you win their loyalty and control them, right? And so that's what the the older group is telling him to do. What do the younger people telling tell him to do? And, and get this, as opposed to the people who were with King Solomon, um, the young men who had grown up with Rehoboam said to him, "Thus shall you say to them: My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions." So, there's um, th- this is so um, this response is incredibly crude and disrespectful. And when, you, when commentators look at what it uh, basically say what it means when he says, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist, um, it's not talking about his finger. It's actually talking about his like genitals, where he's basically saying, I am this much more bigger of a man than Solomon is. And this is what they're telling Rehoboam to say about Solomon. So this is, this is like the puffed up chest, like posturing type of person who's like, like, a, like a frat boy or something who's just co- like really arrogant and cocky and like exerting a lot of power and control over people and being like, you know what, if you don't do what I, you know, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punch you in the face or whatever. This is kind of the posture that these younger people are telling him to adopt. He says more, um, my father disciplined you with whips but I will discipline you with scorpions. So if you thought my father was bad, just you wait for Rehoboam, for me, Rehoboam, where he disciplined them with whips. So like, they're not working hard enough. They're rebelling, whatever it is. I'm going to whip you. I'm going to I'm gonna whip you with scorpions. And like, that's an image. Um, it doesn't mean he's literally going to grab a scorpion and whip them, but it means basically there's a thing called a scourge, right? Where it's like a multi, um, it's like a multi whip that could like sometimes have, Bits of metal or chunks like on the end of it. And so it's like a scorpion strike, right? Where you're getting hit multiple times, and that's just how much harsher he will be. So now, like, if you were to listen to those two councils, if you were a politician, for example, and two groups of people were saying, be a total jerk, be arrogant, like whatever it might be, exert your dominance and power and control. And then another group said to you, um, win them over by serving them, by speaking well of them which one would you follow? What do you think? Which do you think is more effective in winning people's loyalty or controlling them or whatever it might be? The, which one? The older, the older people's advice might work better. What's interesting is if you look at history, both of them work at different times. And it depends a lot on the circumstances and the type of people that are being ruled, and so you see a lot of totalitarian dictators who are more like the scorpion one, um, and that actually works to win their base for a long time. From in many cases, um, and so like what the the thing I want you to note is um, neither of these choices. There's kind of a, a subtle observation that I don't know if you noticed. Um, this is. An absolute contrast to the way Solomon did things. When Solomon was making decisions, he had wisdom from God. Who is completely absent in all of this decision-making? God. At no point is Rehoboam like, I wonder what God's word, like what the scriptures might say about how to rule these people. And the older people, their, what their advice was more in line with what scripture says And in a sense, the author probably thinks it's better to listen to the older, wiser people than the younger people. But even both of them are foolish because the fool says in their heart, there is no God. Rehoboam is a fool because he does not consider what God might have to say when it comes to this political decision. And so he actually chooses, um, he demonstrates his foolishness in a number of ways. Both options are made out of political expediency rather than out of prayerfulness right? Political expediency, what is most effective for consolidating my power? Um, He leans on human understanding, not on God's wisdom. Not only that, he's foregoing God's purposes for the king, because how does he respond? What path does he choose? In verse 15, the king did not listen to the people. The king chose the zoomers over the boomers to be the advice that he listened to, and honestly, like they were they wanted him to be like a tough coach, someone who dominated and exerted harsh, strict, oppressive power over the people. And basically, it's, it's my way or the highway. You got to get out of here. If you don't listen to me, I'm going to kill you. That's like basically the the tone of his statement to Jeroboam and Israel. And so we can see kind of Rehoboam's foolishness here, right? This is kind of the picture you get about him. Another interesting thing about him is he doesn't really have his own personal voice. Did you notice that? Where Solomon uh, made his decisions out of almost a sense of God speaking to him directly and him reading scripture and him like having, in a sense, autonomy, Rehoboam is just listening to people. And I mean this in kind of like a negative sense, where it's almost like he has no opinion whatsoever, so he's just gonna listen to different groups of people. And so he's kind of like a figurehead. He doesn't have a strong sense of what's right. He doesn't have a strong sense of his own personal wisdom. It's just borrowing from other people. And so he's he wiffle waffles, he compromises, he's flimsy. He's flimsy as a character. Um, that's what he's like, and he's foolish. So like, I, let's move to the next point. This is a picture of the folly that Rehoboam has. But the really cool thing is, if, if we were to stop there, you might think this passage is all about, don't be foolish, don't listen to those young people, they don't know what they're talking about, listen to the old wise people. This is totally like Chinese culture. Um, this is totally like Chinese culture. Uh, that's not what the passage is actually about, though that might be part of the meaning. Because in verse 15, it says, the king did not listen to the people, And it doesn't say the king did not listen to the people because he was unwise or he was foolish, though he was. It says the king did not listen to the people for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. And so this is a really interesting thing. Remember the grandmaster analogy. Rehoboam is making moves on the chessboard and he is completely not involved he's not involving God whatsoever in the decision-making he's acting on his own. He's listening to other people. He's moving the chess pieces, but who is the one controlling the, the state of the game? Who's the one who's the queen's gambit. There's like this part in the TV show where she's like visualizing all the different permutations of the chess moves up on the ceiling. Um, and she, it's, it's an interesting show, but God is the one in control. God is the one who actually takes the foolishness of Rehoboam and uses it to what? It was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So God is using Rehoboam's foolishness to bring about the consequences of Solomon turning away from God. You get that again? God is using the foolishness of Rehoboam to bring about the consequences from Solomon turning away from God. Now, like, what what does this mean for us? There are a few things that this is really incredible about. And honestly, when I think about a lot of Christians, um, myself included, uh, we're very moralistic in the way we believe God acts. And there is good reason to do that. When you read the book of Proverbs, the basic meaning of the book of Proverbs is make wise decisions and God will bless you. If you do the right thing, like there are all of these different proverbs, like, like um, oh, let's see if I can remember this one. The sluggard brings his hand to the food, but it doesn't, is too lazy to lift it to his mouth or something like that. I'm, I'm like butchering it a little bit. But the idea is basically like, you're so lazy that even when you have food in front of you, you won't even bring it to your mouth. And the point is, if you're that lazy, you're not going to get fed right? And that kind of applies to all sorts of areas of life where it's like, you need to do work or else you won't accomplish anything. You won't have strength to do what you want to accomplish and be successful in life. So the book of Proverbs, do the right thing, good things will happen to you. Do what God says, God will bless you. But here's the crazy thing about this passage. God's sovereignty works in that way where we want to make wise decisions. We want to avoid sin. We want to avoid foolishness. But what the crazy thing here is, God not only is sovereign over our wise decisions, but He's also sovereign over our foolishness, and He repurposes our foolishness to accomplish His goals. And so, here here are a few ways that God redeems folly. Um, number one, God uses it experientially. So we, or God uses our own foolishness so we can experience the emptiness of sin, and the, the worship of false gods. When, you, when you're when you young and you're pursuing different sins, whatever it might be, um, you think the people who sin are having fun and the people who avoid sin are kind of like they're square and they're boring and they, you know, like there's so many ways that this comes up. Um, and sometimes they're kind of right because sometimes, anyway, like moralistic people can be pretty boring. Um, but <laughs> so, sorry. <laughs> am, am I being like really mean? Sorry. I, I'm sorry. Um, what, but when you actually experience the consequences of turning away from God, you realize this is not what it promised me. When I was setting out to experience sin, I thought it would be fun. I thought I would experience fulfillment and satisfaction and joy in pursuing these different things. But it turns out to be empty. Now, me saying that does ab- almost absolutely nothing when it comes to you choosing to sin or not. But when you experience it, things change. And you think to yourself, rather than follow sin, I want to follow God because sin sucks. And the Bible has different analogies. Sin is slavery. Sin is drug addiction, where you think it's going to promise you everything, and then you find that your your health is ruined, your life is falling apart. But here's the crazy thing. God takes your foolishness and your sinfulness and He redeems it. God uses it to show you the, the wisdom of His ways, how His way is better and actually leads to more lasting satisfaction and joy. The next one, God uses our folly to reveal the impurity in our affections towards Him so we can grow by repenting. Um, when your heart is impure, and I mean in like the chemistry term, there are multiple different um, substances mixed together. Um, There is faith, but there's also doubt. There is love of God, but there's also hatred of God. When God, uh, When we follow our foolish decisions, God is bringing out the idea from last week where God wants our heart to be pure before him the same way that a married couple should only have eyes for the other person. God is a jealous God who wants faithfulness in his marriage with us. And so he uses our folly to reveal how our, to us how our hearts are impure. And he actually uses that to grow us. But there's even more than this. God uses our folly to surprise us with his faithful love. And the, new t- the term for this all throughout scripture is grace. Where when we act foolishly, when we act sinfully, God could very easily say, You know, if you do the right thing, I'm going to bless you. If you do the wrong thing, you're done, you get punished. But all throughout scripture, you look at Rehoboam, you look at Solomon, you look at all the Kings, God never abandons Israel, despite their foolishness, despite them worshiping other gods. And this is basically God saying, like from last week, from the musical Hamilton, even when you're unfaithful to me, I will remain faithful to you. And I don't know how many of you have experienced this in your life. God really becomes real, not just when you're obeying him. God really becomes real when you fail to obey him and your heart is broken at your own unfaithfulness to God. And then you expect God will say, get out of here. I'm disappointed in you. I don't want you. But instead, God says, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you while you're sinning. While you're foolish, God doesn't want you to to leave you there, but he responds in a surprising way to us when we are faithless with his faithfulness. Our faithlessness, our foolishness does not cancel out God's plan for us. And not only that, he shows love and grace to us in those moments we would least expect it based on the way of the world. Finally, God points us back to Christ on the cross when we look at our foolishness and folly. Um, The ultimate example of how God redeemed suffering and foolishness was Jesus Christ. When he came to the world, he was God, he was man, fully God, fully man, the very presence of God, this loving creator who made the universe, who made all of humanity, and people were so foolish that they didn't recognize him as their ruler, creator, king, father, And instead, they took him to the cross, humiliated him, beat him, killed him. That is utter foolishness and folly. And yet, God redeemed that, and he was the grandmaster who said, your human choices are sending Jesus Christ, my son, to the cross. But I am the grandmaster. I am the queen's gambit lady. I can redeem even your worst foolishness, for your greatest good. And he does that at the same time. He does that at the same time in the cross. He does that at the same time in our lives. And this is what people can't understand. The very moment that you're being foolish, that you're being sinful, that your kids are being foolish and sinful, that I'm being foolish and sinful, those are the very moments where God is redeeming to show us his grace and love. Because we are not the one who is faithful. Apart from God, we cannot be faithful to God. Apart from God, we can't be faithful to anyone because we are sinful and broken in that way. But because of God's love for us, him acting first on our behalf, 1 John says, we love because God first loved us, right? Because God loved us before we did anything to deserve it, we can actually love other people in the same way that he loves us. And it comes from responding to his grace and love. Uh, Let me use, uh, let me me end with a few, like just a few more verses. And this is the final part, where God is faithful and loving towards us in showing discipline to us to draw us back. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter seven, we're getting to the end here, like chapter seven, verse 12 through 15, God made a promise to King David before Solomon was around. He said this, when Solomon, this is talking about David's son, God talking to David about Solomon. When Solomon commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And in this section of 1 Kings, we see that God raises up an adversary, actually in three adversaries against Solomon because he is faithless to God. And that is actually a fulfillment of this prophecy, God disciplining him to bring him back. So God will discipline him. But guess what? my steadfast love will not depart from him. It will not depart from him. If you are in foolishness right now, if you are stuck and struggling in sin right now, if you're a believer, God's steadfast love never departs from you, no matter what you do. For your kids, they can do whatever you could, the worst thing you could imagine to ruin their lives. But if they're a believer, God's steadfast love will never depart from them and he will always be working to bring them back. And I see so many, we we're in prayer meeting and it just people were sharing so many cool examples of how even when people leave and like, like they go off to college or they move to somewhere else, we have these amazing stories of how like Dan, Daniel, we had nothing to do with their relationship with God for years on end. And yet God out of his love and faithfulness brings them back. They are totally outside of our control. We are not the masters of the chessboard, but God knows exactly what they need and is bringing people into their lives to show his love, to discipline them, to draw their hearts back to him. His steadfast love will never depart from us. And so therefore, I wanna end with this. Proverbs chapter three, verse 11 and 12. And this, honestly, people say that this was Solomon writing these Proverbs, which is kind of heartbreaking, but also like encouraging. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who, whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. This is so incredible. If your heart is wandering from God and you are experiencing God's discipline in different ways, there are so many different ways that God gets our attention. He can do it through, honestly, uh, physical issues where some people in the New Testament get sick and it's out of the discipline of God. He's trying to draw them back to him because they were taking the Lord's table in an unworthy way. They weren't paying attention to the poor people in the church. Um, God disciplines them to bring them back, to draw them back. God could discipline you because you feel cold and empty towards God. God could discipline you when circumstances don't turn out the way you want. He uses so many different ways. God disciplines you through um, someone, a significant person in your life, getting mad at you because you were unfaithful to them or you were not uh, treating them well. And that's a way that God can get your attention and discipline you. But at the same time, don't despise it. Why? Because the Lord reproves him whom he loves. If God is not paying attention to you, if God, if you don't feel like God is acting towards you in any way whatsoever, and you're just floating around, God does not occur to you at all, I would be concerned because it says here that God disciplines those whom he loves. So this is like a parent. If if a parent has nothing to do with their kid, do do they love their kid? And in the same way, if you don't know what it's like for God to deal with you, to try to get your attention, then I, I would just kind of say like, you might not be a Christian. You probably aren't. But if you feel like God is drawing you, if there's something in your heart that's tugging you, God is trying to get your attention and speak to you, that's God reproving, God drawing, God leading by the Holy Spirit um, in the same way as a father, the son in whom he delights. So God delights in us. And because of that, he wants our hearts to be pure. He wants our hearts to be full with love for him. And not only that, God just delights in us. And that's why he takes so much care when it comes to our spiritual development and growth. So let me finish with this C.S. Lewis quote. This is a really brilliant image for what the path of a Christian looks like and the growth of a Christian looks like. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You, know, you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. Me and Ashley recently became homeowners, so like, I get this analogy in a way that I never did before. Um, you, you know there's a lot of stuff wrong with your house, and you got to work on it. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abomin- abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. God cares about you so much and is building something so beautiful you can't possibly imagine out of your life. And how does he do that? I'm sorry to say he does it through discipline, he does it through sovereignty, despite our foolishness and sin. And really, when you taste the grace of God, when you don't deserve it, that's how you know you are a true Christian. That's how you know that you've encountered God in a real way. He surprises you. He shows love to you when you don't expect it. And you can feel him dealing with you and disciplining you. Would you respond to his discipline with repentance and obedience and faith Gratefulness for how he's faithful, even when we're faithless. Um, God turns our folly for his purposes in our lives that we might become this palace, as C.S. Lewis says. Let's pray. Um, Dear Lord, I thank you that you never give up on us, that your steadfast love never departs from us. And I thank you so much that despite our foolishness and sinfulness, you sent Jesus Christ to this world, to the cross, and rose him from the dead that we might. Uh, know him who is wisdom from you. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live wisely, but I trust, Lord, that whatever we choose, you are in control, sovereignly directing our lives for our good. So I pray you would powerfully work, you would discipline me, you would discipline us in the ways that we need, that we might more fully taste the joy of your salvation. We love you so much and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.